1: Section 12 of Neoplatonism by Charles Big. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 12. The World of Sense. 1. Like all the Greek idealists, Plotinus drew a very sharp distinction between the world of sense and the world of intelligence. The world of sense is in itself manifold, impermanent, half-real, and therefore imperfectly knowable. It is marked 1 by multiplicity, What it offers to us is an interminable host of sensations, of sight, sound, touch, taste, smell. These we can in no way grasp or understand, till we have reduced them to order. We observe their recurrence in more or less fixed combinations, we gather them into groups, and these again into still larger groups. From the conception of a horse we rise to that of an animal, and from a comparison of all animals with all plants and all inorganic things to that of sensible existence. We generalize, we unify, and in proportion as we succeed in laying hold of a principle of unity, we begin to know. The unity is in the things themselves. All things that are, are, because they are one. There could be no army, no chorus, no flock of sheep, if each were not one. No house, no ship, for, if the house or the ship loses its unity, it is no longer a house or a ship. But in a higher sense it is in mind. It is imparted to the things by the divine mind, and we perceive it because our minds are akin to the divine. 2. By change. The Platonists had learned from Heraclitus that all things flow like a stream of water. You cannot step twice into the same river. God alone can say, I am. The man who goes to bed at night is not the same man who rose in the morning. All that we see is like a drifting cloud. Before you can point your finger at it, it has taken a different shape. Perpetual mutability is the law of life. Peace, Heraclitus said, belongs only to the dead. From this again it follows that the sensible world cannot in itself be known. For knowledge is enduring, and its object must endure also. 3. By Strife Here again Heraclitus taught the Platonist that the condition of existence is the ceaseless play of antagonisms. Life begets death, and death life. War, said Heraclitus, is the father of all things and the king of all. And on this ground he found fault with Homer for praying that strife might perish from among gods and men. In the philosopher's judgment the poet had unwittingly cursed the world for all things are the children of strife. This idea was a commonplace among the Platonists. They were not dismayed so much by the apparent harshness of the world's march by the laws of life in death, of competition and survival of the fittest whatever is lawful seemed to admit of some kind of explanation though not a wholly satisfactory one the main difficulties they found in lawlessness in imperfection of type and above all in moral evil how they grappled with these perplexities we shall see later on here it is sufficient to notice that in the sensible world they discerned everywhere traces of inadequacy a weakening of the ideal as in a picture that only partially realizes the artist's conception but the power to recognize imperfection depends on the knowledge of the perfect it is by the law that we condemn the lawless now law says Plotinus, does not make lawlessness neither does lawlessness make law disorder is due to the fact that order is superimposed by a higher intelligence upon things or creatures that are for some reason or another imperfectly receptive of it here again then the sensible world cannot be understood in itself we must look to the ideal of which it is the image the shadow And we claim to possess this ideal by the very fact that we can venture to pass judgment on the deficiencies of a shadow. 4. By necessity. Here everything is bound in the iron chain of causality. Everything has a cause. The cause is outside it, and yet determines its nature. Even man himself, so far as he is an animal, is not free. His reasonings depend on sensations, and these on external objects. His will is limited by circumstances. Even his virtues are called into existence by the nature of the peculiar difficulties with which he has to contend. Nevertheless, an universal, and therefore true, belief tells him that he is free. Where, then, is the freedom to be found? Not in this material, contingent world, where all depends on something else, but in the realm of thought. Thought is cause and not effect, determined only by the laws of truth and goodness, which are itself therefore self-determined, therefore free thus again we are led to believe in the existence of another world higher and better than the world of sense from these considerations it followed that the world we live in is a world of half reality a world of becoming not of being apprehended by opinion not by true knowledge the facts of sense which we think most certain are really least certain we do not even know that they are not purely subjective they are a stepping stone to understanding we must begin with them but they play us sad tricks because they make it most difficult for us to avoid attributing to spiritual existence the qualities which we are accustomed to recognize in finite objects those who have read the republic of plato will recollect the famous allegory of the men in the cave the favorite simile of plotinus is that of saint paul the world is like a mirror in which a man sees the shadows of realities only he adds you see the mirror and you do not see matter If we look closely at the world of sense, we discover that it is a combination of two factors. 1. Matter. and 2. Qualities. 1. The reader must distinguish carefully between matter and material or stuff. According to the Timaeus of Plato, the cosmos was made by God out of necessity or chaos, primeval stuff that is, already possessing certain attributes, including no doubt solidity and extension, but piled together without order and heaving to and fro with a discordant unintelligent movement this view is represented in later times by plutarch whom it led to the belief in an evil creator side by side with the good for this determined material is already a manufactured article and as it is not molded by almost it must owe its nature to ariman but the later platonists as albinus or alcinus and plotinus follow on this point the teaching of the peripatetics and stoics aristotle was the first to use the word matter in greek hyle, wood in latin materia building stuff as a term of the schools to denote the impalpable invisible substratum of things in contradistinction from the visible form from him these two famous phrases passed to the stoics and from them to neoplatonism plotinus differs from aristotle in some minor details but practically what he did was to clear the idealist use of the word from any sort of ambiguity Strip off from any finite existence all attributes of every kind. Take away from it colour, taste, smell, warmth, texture, solidity, shape, extension, and the residuum is matter. The necessity of such a residuum was established partly by appeal to the universal belief of the schools, partly by the scientific axiom that nothing can come out of nothing, and nothing can return into nothing. Suppose a case of complete change, such as that of the grub into the butterfly. There has been complete alteration, yet no death, no breach of continuity. Something has persisted. The form has been entirely renewed, but the matter subsists unaffected. Hence matter is called the nurse, receptacle, vehicle, substratum of the form. It must not be supposed that the matter becomes the form, or that it acquires qualities by union with the form. It is merely the principle of the form's cohesion, the condition of its manifestation. It receives shape yet is not shaped it remains always exactly what it was absolutely undefined for modern readers there is a trap in the word we have borrowed from the latin we call it matter but to the greek matter itself is immaterial it has no body it has no parts or divisions it is one continuous unqualified the nearest approach we can make to it is to be found in that intangible ether which physicists speak of as pervading all space it cannot be said either to exist or not to exist actually it is nothing potentially if it be joined to form it is all things its existence is a future a promise of being the subtle greek marked the distinction by one of its exquisite turns of expression matter is not nothing but no thing but if it has no qualities what can we know about it in the night all colors are black says plotinus and so when the mind strips its object of all definiteness No light is left, and it sees nothing but the darkness. Can it be said even to see the darkness? For it can see it only as solid, and matter has no solidity. Is thinking about matter then the same as thinking about nothing? No. When we think about nothing, the mind is blank. But when we think about matter, we have a kind of impression of the shapeless. So Plato said that we conceived of it by a bastard reasoning it will be seen that the neoplatonist went very near to denying the existence of matter if as he defined it it was not nothing it was at any rate next to nothing sometimes plotinus seems inclined to blot it out altogether as bishop Berkeley did and carlyle but this is merely due to his love of starting every possible hypothesis the eternity of matter lies at the root of his whole system and it lands him in two grave difficulties if matter is eternal it ought on his own most cherished principles to be perfect, yet he regards it as the cause of evil. And if it has no qualities, it ought to be a perfectly indifferent medium for the form. Yet, as we shall see, there was much in the world for which he could only account by supposing that matter had a certain power of resistance, a sort of imperfect transparency, so that the form often succeeded only partially in suffusing the matter with its light. This is the fundamental difficulty of Platonism. It does not succeed, after all, in attaining that unity towards which all philosophy aspires. It issues in a dualism. Matter is distinguished from God, and therefore limits God both physically and morally. This explains why the Platonist was so anxious to reduce the conception of matter to the lowest possible term, why he ascribed to it a merely hypothetical existence. If he could show that matter was all but nothing, he could also show that God was all but almighty. He narrowed the gulf to a mere chink. could not close it altogether if plotinus had done what modern philosophers are inclined to do if he had set the human mind on the same plane with bodily existence and found in god the common and sole cause of both he would have been compelled to distinguish between finite and infinite spirits and this he thought impossible but further he would have imported moral evil and physical imperfection into the self-evolution of the divine and thus again have limited god In some shape or another the dualism must always remain. We cannot leap off our own shadow, as Goethe said. No philosophy can solve the insoluble. The best philosophy is that which approaches nearest to a solution and explains the most, and the most important, phenomena of life. It is worthwhile to dwell upon the definition of matter, for it is one of the most interesting words in language. Endless controversies, philosophical and theological, have centred round it. The doctrine of transubstantiation, for instance, with all its momentous consequences hinges upon the definition of Plotinus, which in words agrees with, but in substance absolutely differs from, that of Aristotle. Yet Aristotle was not a Christian, and Plotinus was an antagonist of Christianity. But the word has received a more immediate and practical interest in our own times. For the matter of Plotinus is, in fact, the infinite, the god of the modern agnostic. Agnosticism begins by setting the finite against the infinite, and endeavors to grasp the infinite by throwing on one side all those properties or limitations which make the finite. This is precisely the method, the via negativa, pursued by Plotinus in his hunt after matter. Naturally the result is the same. The infinite is a presupposition of all knowledge, but in itself is a mere negation, involved in our perception of all finite things, yet in itself no thing. We must believe in it. Yet cannot know it, because it is like a vast sheet of gray paper stretched across the sky, with no lines or divisions upon which the eye can rest. We have a sort of consciousness of it, an impression, as Plotinus said, of the shapeless. It is in fact the matter, the infinite, of the Platonist. But what the agnostic calls good, the Platonist called evil. This startling contradiction depends on the view that is taken as to the nature of qualities. If the infinite is the perfect, the finite is imperfect. And if this imperfection comes from its finitude finitude as such is bad hence the qualities which define and limit and negate the infinite are in themselves evil but to the platonist the qualities are precisely that which gives existence life and beauty they are the reality so far as reality is to be found in this world it is true that they are but shadows imperfect copies of the heavenly realities but the imperfection is due precisely to their contamination by the infinite things would have been a great deal clearer if the platonist had only used the word law in its modern sense when he spoke of law he meant convention what we call law he called idea but if we may translate his teaching into our own familiar phraseology it amounts to this that where there is law there is good and where there is no law there is evil liberty says mr ruskin whether in the body soul or political estate of man is only another word for death and the final issue of death putrefaction The body soul and political estate being healthy only by their bonds and laws this is platonism pure and simple liberty here is the indefinite infinite material which in itself is no good and no thing law is neither finite nor infinite though both terms may be applied to it with equal impropriety it is the reality and the life and qualities are the scintillations the bubbles on the stream by which we ascertain the presence and the nature of the life End of section 12. Section 13 of Neoplatonism by Charles Big. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 13. The World of Sense. Two. Two. The leading passages on the subject of qualities are Ennead's Two, Part Six, Throughout. Six, Part Three, eight nine ten fifteen all sensible existence plotinus considered to be an aggregate of matter and qualities he devoted much labor and space to a thorough and exceedingly keen-sighted criticism of the categories of aristotle which no student of the history of philosophy ought to neglect but for our present purpose it is sufficient to notice one of the most important of his conclusions all qualities whether of what we call in the narrower sense of the word quality such as colour warmth and so forth or of quantity or of movement or of relation may be divided from another point of view into those which are complementary to the existence and those which are not by those which are not he means acquired or fortuitous dispositions such as virtue beauty health disease or transient affections such as blushing or the operations of one body upon another such as the warmth of a garment which has been placed near the fire and then removed these do not concern the existence of the thing they come and go and make no real difference a man is neither more nor less a man because he is bad and iron is neither more nor less iron because it happens to be red hot the last instance is not well chosen from a modern point of view but to the ancient physicist heat was a property of fire was caused by fire and belonged to fire Hence, when found in other things it was a mere accident, a quality gone astray, as it were, from its proper habitat. The really important qualities are the complementary, those which belong to a particular thing, which make it what it is, and with the matter constitute its sensible existence. A particular man produces in us a particular group of impressions. He has a certain height, shape, colour, carriage. These define him, and mark him off from all other objects of perception. We cannot analyse the sensations that he causes in us, they are ultimate facts, but can we account for them in any way? Can we explain how they come to be there for us to perceive, and to be there in that peculiar combination? Plotinus thought that we could, and looked upon the complex group of sensations produced by an individual object as the energies of a Logos, by which that individual object was made. Logos is another famous term of the school's. It requires to be distinguished from idea and from eidos or form the idea is the divine thought in its highest and most abstract expression it is the ultimate cause of all that exists in this world before god could create there must have been in his intelligence a distinct notion or idea of what he meant to create how was it possible that he should first wish to form a horse and then invent the type of a horse obviously the type of a horse must have existed first Six parts seven and eight form is sometimes used as practically synonymous with idea. Where they are distinguished, it is in this way that idea belongs to the intelligence, the second person of the Neoplatonist trinity, while form resides in the soul, the third person. The soul is busy with the world of becoming over which it presides, hence, the ideas which it has received from above have become forms, they have taken shape as it were, they are more concrete. Forms, Plotinus says, are all sensible. They are nearly what we mean by natural kinds, or types. The form is still a thought, but it is on the point of plunging into material existence. It is the general about to become the particular. At this stage it changes into, or evolves, the Logos, which is no longer a thought, but a power or energy. Logos is generally translated word, owing to the influence of the English version of St. John's Gospel and we may render it in accordance with general usage by this expression. Yet it should be noticed that the usage is inaccurate and misleading. Logos signifies not word, but speech, an account or description of anything. Hence it acquired the sense of definition, reasonable explanation. From this again it came by a natural transition to denote that which forms the basis of the explanation, the cause, the living force or energy which brings the thing into being, and makes it what it is. In this last acceptation it is a coinage of the Stoics, from whom it was borrowed by the Neoplatonists. The difference between its usage by the two schools depends on the difference between their respective conceptions of God. The Stoics were pantheists. Their deity was the soul of the world, and the indwelling word was therefore a first cause, an immediate operation of the creative mind. But the Neoplatonists were theists and transcendentalists, and in their teaching accordingly the word is a secondary cause, And approaches very nearly to what we mean by physical law only the law is regarded as a living force proceeding from and inseparably connected with a thought in the divine mind of which it is the likeness the shadow nor is this force wholly unintelligent though its operation resembles rather instinct and it bears to the idea or the form the relation of the sleeping to the waking mind and now we can see what the qualities are the word is often called spermatic from the greek sperma seed because it is like the seed which carries implicit within itself all the properties of the developed plant the texture color fragrance shape of the rose all come from the seed they must therefore have lain in the seed as hidden powers or laws of life which manifest themselves to our perception in this way this of course is but an analogy for the seed itself as material what we are to understand is that whenever the word, shot out as it were from the divine soul, comes into contact with matter, it makes a thing. All its manifold activities come into play. It produces bodyhood, solidity, and extension, and all the phenomena that go with these. It creates, we may say, the ox or the horse as we see them. Not that it moulds or qualifies the matter. The matter is in no case anything but a sort of reflecting surface on which the form is able by means of the word to project a picture of itself a sensible picture adapted to our modes of sensible apprehension. Hence, though the word as such is always combined with matter, being in fact life as we see it at work, we are able to abstract it and consider it in the form or the idea. It will be gathered from what has been said that idea, form and word belong properly to the works of God. They bring down life. It should be noticed, however, that on the one hand every natural thing shares in life so far as it is capable even a stone has energies is a cause in some limited degree because it has a word on the other hand certain exceptions were admitted abnormalities things contrary to nature there was no idea of fever as to the products of human art there was a divergence of opinion most Platonists, according to albinus or alcinus would not allow that a house a shield a picture had any idea they were works of man not of god in the view of Plotinus, five parts nine and eleven all creations of art and industry are ideal in a secondary sense in so far that is as they embody the thoughts of the derived intelligence of man thus he is able to speak of the form of a house as plato spoke of the idea of a bed these instances will help the reader to grasp the general meaning of the doctrine of form what we recognize when we see a house is the plan the mind of the builder it is a concrete thought and could not have been there unless the thought had preceded it doors windows chimneys the arrangement of the rooms the brick or stone or mud or marble of which the walls are composed are all expressions of the word of the man who dwelt under this roof and tried to make himself as comfortable as his material surroundings would allow in one building we discern his poverty in another his love of art in another his political condition in another his religious aspirations Everywhere, so far as we can grasp the idea, the generating purpose, we understand. Where the meaning is illegible, the order confused, knowledge stumbles. So it is in the world at large. The effect is always a symbol of the cause, the thing of the mind that called it into being. Thus we arrive at the idealist position as first distinctly formulated by the great Neoplatonist. The external world is none other than the thought of God transmuted into vital law what we cognize or recognize therein are the traces imitations shadows of intelligence we know them in so far as they are shadows we do not know them in so far as they are only shadows the modern way of expressing the same view is that there is no object without a subject no thing without a thinker nothing can exist nothing be known except in so far as it is made arranged brought into definite relation with other things by an ordering reason there still remain for consideration two important phenomena of the sensible world, which we call space and time. The same general considerations that rule all the conditions of sensible existence apply here also. Space and time are half real because they are the shadows of realities. It is with them as with all qualities. Color does not belong to the idea, yet there is something in the idea which ultimately produces color. It is just the same with space and time. It will assist the reader if we translate here the two most instructive passages on the subject of space. The first is Ennead 5, parts 5 and 9. Every effect is either in its cause or in something else, if there is anything after that which caused it, any secondary cause, that is. For inasmuch as it is brought into being by something else, and wanted that something else in order that it might come to be, it wants it absolutely. Wherefore it is in it, The last things therefore are in the last before them these again in those before them and one thing is in another up to the first principle of all but the first principle inasmuch as it has nothing before it cannot be in anything else and since it cannot be in anything it embraces in itself all those things that are in what precedes them but though it embraces them it is not dissipated among them and contains without being contained since it contains then yet is not contained there is nowhere where it is not otherwise it does not contain and if it is not contained it is not so that it is and is not is not because it is not limited but able to be everywhere because free from all restraint for if it is unable it is bounded by something else and what lies beyond that boundary does not share in it and god reaches to that boundary and no further and will be no longer independent but subject to the things that lie beyond him Things, therefore, which are in something are where they are, but those things which are nowhere are everywhere. The other passage is Ennead 6, parts 8 and 11. The whole difficulty that besets us in the consideration of the world of sense arises from our first assuming space as a kind of chaos, and then, when we have set up this notion of space in our imaginations, bringing God into it, then when we have brought him in We begin to ask whence and how did he come and as if he were a new arrival we have been wondering how he got here and what he is as if he had suddenly emerged from some abyss or dropped down from the clouds it is needful then to cut away the cause of all this perplexity and cast space away altogether from our thought of him and not suppose that he is in anything or lies or is seated in anything or that he came at all but just that he is as he is And as reason proves him to be and that space like everything else is after him that space indeed is after everything else rather more has been translated here than is requisite for our immediate purpose but it will all help the reader on his way space it will be seen is explained by the general doctrine of causality the effect is always in the cause when the word makes bodies it gives them extension and so makes space space is the last of all things It is made by bodies which are made by words which come from the mind everything is in that which precedes it all therefore is in mind which is in god who is in nothing and therefore is everywhere and nowhere if the reader is a little startled by this abrupt conclusion he must remember that existence according to Plotinus, is thought and then ask himself how thoughts exist in the mind what for instance are the length and breadth of the idea of justice or how is it parted off from other ideas what is true of these abstract notions is obviously true also of conceptions derived from material things if we can reason about them as plotinus held that we could without forming a picture of them even if we do form some sort of picture what is the size of our imaginative presentation of an ox or how is it separated from the thought of an animal or in which particular pigeonhole of the mind is it stored away and where is the mind itself These questions help us at any rate to understand what plotinus means we commonly speak of the world as in space according to the neoplatonist space is in the world and nowhere else space in fact is extension if bodies are limited by space they are limited by their own space or shape the limit is from within and not from without thus space place room bulk are only different names for the same property of corporeal existence. It is in the body, or rather about the body, and this distinction shows us what is really meant by in. Bodies cannot be in bodies. They may be adjacent or circumjacent, but never injacent, if that word may be coined. The wine is surrounded by the pitcher, but it is not in the pitcher in the same sense in which a thought is in the mind, as a part which implies the whole. And is interpenetrated by every other part as an energy of the undivided life thus space turns out to be a mere mode of earthly existence a rough similitude of the true spiritual existence carefully interrogated the little word in will lead us up from things here to things yonder from the materialized ideas flattened out into length and breadth so as to become visible we can rise to the conception of the same ideas as they exist one in all and all in one In the divine mind, it is the same with time, to the treatment of which a special book of the Enneads, three part seven, is devoted. The subject is a commonplace with the later Platonists. They set time over against eternity as its counterpart, but not as its contradictory. They are not distinguished as finite and infinite. Time is not a piece snipped off from eternity and measured out. It is just as eternal, in the vulgar sense of the word, as eternity itself. It is an image of eternity, eternity made visible. Eternity is defined as the life of being, that is, of the divine intelligence. And here, therefore, we must to some extent anticipate the doctrine of God. Conceive of a geometer who is absolute master of his science, so that all Euclid is present at once to his mind's gaze as an articulated system a host of propositions ordered in unity conceive of him further as making no immediate use of his knowledge but sitting with eyes closed contemplating it think next of the intelligence of god as the fullness of all abstract thoughts each idea is perfectly distinct and conscious yet they melt into one another and they are felt as the powers of one life and the consciousness of their unity is as clear as that of their disparateness in such an intelligence says plotinus There will be sameness and yet difference, rest and yet movement. There will be life but no change, because nothing can be added to it and nothing taken away. Hence it will have no past or future, only present. The divine intelligence is unity and diversity, it is the one many, and eternity is its property, its nature. We are not far from a correct definition if we say that eternity is life, which is infinite because it includes all life, And never loses any part of itself we may even say that eternity is the same as god in the divine soul the unity is weakened and the diversity is increased it is no longer one many but one and many reasoning has taken the place of contemplation and creation has begun with it begins time time is born of the soul and does not exist out of the soul it is the movement of the reasoning faculty Which grasps one thought after another and passes from one perception to another it is not to be confused with the successive changes of external things such as the stars these are in time they do not create time but reveal it time is in brief the property of the lower life as eternity is of the higher these two stand in the relation of cause and effect of substance and shadow thus while space is a fact of sensible existence time is purely subjective both may be called laws of thought, but only of the lower regions of thought. It is possible, not indeed for all, but certainly for some, for those in whom the higher faculty of intelligence is awake, to deal with pure being, with ideas, divested of these and all other sensible limitations. End of section 13 Section 14 of Neoplatonism by Charles Big. THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. CHAPTER 14, THE INTELLIGIBLE WORLD ABOVE, AROUND, WITHIN THE WORLD OF SENSE, WHICH IS NOT UNREAL BECAUSE IT PARTAKES OF REALITY, IT IS BUT A SHADOW, A SEMBLANCE, STANDS THE WORLD OF INTELLIGENCE, WHICH TRULY EXISTS AND CAN BE TRULY KNOWN. IT IS CHARACTERIZED BY UNITY, ETERNITY, GOODNESS, BEAUTY, TRUTH, FREEDOM, AND LIFE. All these things we see here as in a glass darkly, but yonder face to face. Here and yonder are the words by which Plotinus most commonly marks the difference between the two worlds. Two features of the intelligible world call for a special notice. It is many, yet it is one. One. It is many. For it is the archetype, the pattern of the world of sense. Whatever is here is also yonder. not in exactly the same sense, because its mode of existence is different. There is no matter yonder, yet there is something which corresponds to it. Ideas are not compound and divisible like bodies, yet some are lower and more complex, after others. The idea of animal is simpler, earlier than that of man, and intelligence stands to soul in the relation of form. Soul is a child of intelligence, and in it. There are no qualities yonder. Yet there are powers which issue in qualities there is no room yet mind is the room of the ideas there is no time yet time the moving life of the soul is the child and image of eternity for this aspect of intelligence the most speaking name is life here again we will translate plotinus six parts seven and twelve for since we say that this all is framed after the yonder as after a pattern The all must first exist yonder as a living entity, an animal. And since its idea is complete, everything must exist yonder. Heaven, therefore, must exist there as an animal, not without what here we call its stars. And this is the idea of heaven. Yonder, too, of course, must be the earth, not bare, but far more richly furnished with life. In it are all creatures that move on dry land and plants rooted in life sea too is yonder and all water ebbing and flowing in abiding life and all creatures that inhabit the water and all the tribes of the air are part of the all yonder and all aerial beings for the same reason as air itself for how should that which is in the living not live itself seeing that even here it lives surely then every animal must of necessity be yonder for as each of the great parts of the world is so of necessity is the nature of the creatures that it contains as then heaven itself exists yonder so yonder exist all the animals that dwell in heaven and it is not possible that it should be otherwise the word animals in this passage embraces not only sentient creatures but plants and inorganic substances all share in a kind of life in so far as they are moulded by a word they answer to a thought and therefore it cannot be beneath the dignity of the divine intelligence to contemplate their ideas Existence, in one of its aspects, is life, or has life, and life is teeming, prolific, manifold. This real and fertile conception is the main avenue through which Plotinus endeavours to reach the notion of deity. Life begets all the infinite variety of qualities, even opposite and warring qualities, such as heat and cold. It makes our bodies, it makes the world in which they move and act. Plotinus speaks with something approaching to contempt, of logic, as a mere system of barren rules, and professes to be guided by a truly scientific method. It was his misfortune, and not his fault, that, in his time, there was scarcely anything deserving the name of science, except in the way of mathematics, and to some extent of surgery. But his abstractions were not mere abstractions. He does not attempt to get at the unconditioned by leaving out the conditioned. In this way we make God merely the great denial. He is not this and not that, And so we banish him altogether, building up a high wall, as it were, round the verge of the world. The difficulty remains unsolved and unsolvable, because no number of negatives will make an affirmative. Ten thousand ignorances will not create knowledge. The method of Plotinus is the exact opposite. He starts with an affirmative, with a fact, with something that we know. God is, and is life. Here we have a seed thought, a word full of powers capable of separate and diversified manifestations what we have to do next is to view this life in itself as perfect and free this we can achieve because its earthly limitations lend us a hand as it were they are traces which mark out the upward path hence we must by no means deny them or leave them out of count but simply transform them we dismiss the particular but carry with us the general we leave the thing but grasp the energy that causes the thing god is god not because he is nothing but because he embraces all those energies he is absolute but not unconditioned and this anagoge or upward path plotinus held to be open to us because the human mind is a copy and may become an exact copy of the mind of god intelligence therefore is many because it is the fullness of thought the sum total of the ideas exists in the divine noose not outside of it like golden statues which god must search for and look up to before he can think it is not to be supposed that he must needs run about in search of notions perhaps not finding them at all perhaps not recognizing them when found this is the lot of man whose life is spent often in the search sometimes in the vain search after truth but to the deity all knowledge is always equally present this as we have already seen was the master thought which gave birth to idealism as a coherent whole and clinched it into an intelligible system Two but it is also one. Suppose, says Plotinus, that thou hadst the eyes of Lynceus who could see into the inside of things. Suppose, 5 parts 8 and 9, that thou couldst view the world from without, and it was a great sphere of transparent glass full of light, so that thou couldst see at a glance all that is in it. Keeping this supposition in mind, conceive another sphere divested of bulk, of place, of the notion of matter that is in thee. Do not try to make the second sphere merely smaller than the first, but call God to thy aid, who made the sphere of which thou hast an imagination. And may he come bringing with him his own world, with all the gods that are in it, being one and all, and all in each, all blending into one, and in their powers being different, but in the one sovereign power all being one, or rather all being the one. Let us observe how Plotinus struggles to define the idea of immaterial existence. He was the first writer who fairly grappled with this task. He was confronted by the usual difficulty, that all words are coined to express the visible and tangible, and do not apply exactly to anything that does not fall under the grasp of the senses. Hence the nature of mind can only be expressed in negatives. We say, for instance, that life is immaterial or infinite. We know exactly what we mean. The negative word has a positive sense. But the notion of matter is in thee, and has enlisted all language in its service so that, though the other notion of life is in thee, too, it cannot find a faithful interpreter. We can think what it is, we can only say what it is not. The general habit of Plotinus is to couple a positive with a negative. Thus, when he speaks of an idea as part of the mind, he will say, a part, yet not a part, because the word part applies properly only to things that we can break in pieces. Yet a notion may be said to have parts inasmuch as it is complex and can be defined. Though it is incapable of physical division similarly for omnipresence which has no equivalent in greek he will say everywhere and yet nowhere in the passage just quoted immaterial sphere he begs the reader to notice does not mean a smaller sphere size does not come in at all what he wants to get at is the pure idea of a sphere most men being unapt for abstract thought have only an imagination can only grasp the notion by forming an actual picture or image of it Such pictures are too concrete, they bring out the lines of division too clearly. They belong to the soul, but not to the intelligence. We want not exactly to obliterate these lines, but to see through them. But for this we want the help of God, who alone can teach us to think about that which transcends experience. Intelligence, the intellectual world, then, is one in all its diversity, because all its thoughts form a living whole. Each carries with it all the others. If we know one perfectly we know all they are like the rays of a circle shooting out from one point like the manifold virtues immanent in one seed yet even these similes are too material it has been said of the flower in the crannied wall if i could understand what you are root and all and all in all i should know what god and man is for the whole world went to the making of that wind blown plant if we knew exactly how it came to be there We should know how the Almighty created the universe. The roots of everything spring from the divine mind, and these roots are thoughts of which each lies in and interpenetrates every other, in a manner past expression, yet intelligible, because it is the commonest experience of life. But we cannot adequately express it, because to speak is to divide. Express means to flatten out. Intelligence again is one, because in it the thinker, the act of thought, the object of thought, are all one. The soul, the lower reasoning faculty, sees itself as another. To use the modern phrase, the eye is conscious of a not-I. The raw stuff of its knowledge is imported from abroad. Its office is to manufacture it by judging, combining, discriminating the materials supplied by sense. It is busy about external things, and therefore does not think itself, though, in order to perform its work correctly, it must be helped by knowledge supplied to it from above. But the eternal intelligence does not need to run to and fro in search of information. It possesses all the ideas. It does not want to discover them, because it sees them, and always sees them. In this act of contemplation the distinction of subject and object is really lost. They are merely phases of the same thing. The thought is the self. Thus the divine intelligence, in Aristotelian phrase, thinks itself, sees all knowledge in itself, and itself in all knowledge. It is perfect self-consciousness, mind withdrawn into itself, and seeing all life in its cause, that is to say, in itself. This is the highest conception of existence. The intelligence is being, is God. To this height the human reason can attain, though not without preparation and not without prayer. But there is still a further step needed before the system is complete. All things exist because they are one. But unity is a word of many different meanings. Creatures have it—a chorus, a ship, a horse, or each one—but their parts are separable and the combination is evanescent. Thoughts have it, yet we can analyze and distinguish thoughts. Still more emphatically intelligence has it. Yet even here we can take note of the difference between thinker and thought, if only as phases of the same energy. In all these cases, then, even in the highest, the unity is derived. They are one, but not the one. They have unity, but are not unity. Hence, above the many we must set the one, above existence the cause of existence, above the conceivable the inconceivable. According to Plotinus, being requires for its adequate explanation two hypostases, or, as we translate the word in English theology, persons that are, soul and intelligence, and one person that is not, the one or the good. These three constitute the Neoplatonic trinity. This is a topic of the highest interest. On the one hand, there can be no doubt that these speculations aided greatly in the clear formulation of Christian truth, to this extent that they made it possible to understand how the three divine persons of the baptismal formula should yet be one in Godhead. On the other, the place assigned by the heathen philosophers to the doctrine of the One, combined with the purely intellectual character of their system, was largely, though by no means entirely, the cause of the rapid degradation of Neoplatonism and of the scornful judgment usually passed upon it by modern historians. Before we proceed then to the fuller consideration of the doctrine of God, it will be well to see, if we can, how Plotinus reached it, and what he meant by it. Partly, as we have seen, the Neoplatonist trinity was historical. It combines the Pythagorean one and the Aristotelian intelligence with the Platonic creator, but partly also it has a psychological basis. The real method of Plotinus is undoubtedly based upon observation of the phenomena of human consciousness. He himself points out the importance of psychology. The soul occupies an intermediate position between the intelligible and the sensible. Hence, 4, parts 3, 1, it opens to us knowledge in both directions, upwards and downwards. How again, he asks, 5, parts 3, 8, could we even talk about intelligence if we did not in some sort possess it? Again all three hypostases belong to us Often it is difficult to ascertain with precision whether he is speaking of the divine or of the human soul, so immediately does the knowledge of the one pass into that of the other. It is really then at this point that we ought to begin, if we are to grasp the mode in which his system was developed, and avoid the temptation to mere barren criticism. Yet it must be acknowledged that this is not the method which Plotinus himself professes to follow. Or shall we say for it is equally true that he has no method what is it then that the human mind has to tell us can we discover there the shadow of the platinian trinity the answer to the question must be in the affirmative other writers both before and after the neoplatonists have distinguished between two modes of mental activity the verstand and the vernunft the reason or soul and the intelligence or nous They are generally differentiated in much the same way. In the first, the mind goes forth to discover or to act. In the second, it returns upon itself. In the first, the antithesis of subject and object is sharply defined. In the second, it is blurred or obliterated. In the first, the particular is compared with the general, and so understood. The second deals with generals only. But beyond these two, we may discern a third phase, when the mind withdraws into itself, And becomes as it were a mere point so it is in sleep or in waking moments when no definite thought is present and consciousness is a blank mind has contracted itself into its innermost source and all its channels are dry then again it darts forth its energies in contemplation in action and life is once more in full flow consciousness is not strictly equable it has pulsations like the course of the blood and sometimes the systole and diastole seem to stand still yet the life is uninterrupted and the hidden basis of the mind is always there but what is this hidden basis it is neither thinker nor thought for where one of these is the other must be and where there is no thought there can be no thinker it is therefore neither yet it is the cause of both the ultimate power which as the fountain of unity and life is the oneness the good of the individual It is not conscious, and has no name, because, though the root of all activity, it has as yet assumed no definite shape. We may say, then, that it does not exist. Only in so saying we are limiting the idea of existence to that of distinct thought. The One does not exist, not because it is beneath existence, but because it is above it. Hidden though it be behind the light which it sheds forth, this is a favourite image with Plotinus. We yet know that it must be there because of the light. This inexplicable mystery is precisely the thing in which we most certainly believe. No man doubts that he is one, that he is himself. Plotinus said that the individuality cannot be known, but we must understand exactly what he means by knowledge. Ordinarily, in our English usage, we are said to know when we can describe, or when we feel, or when we can explain, The last is the only sense of the word admitted by the Greek philosopher. Things composite can be described in language or by a drawing. Though the thing itself may never have been seen, it may be some strange animal, yet the parts of it, the colour, lines, texture, will be familiar, and those who see the drawing will know what it means. Simple facts of sense, for instance the colour of redness, cannot be described in words. They admit of presentation, but not of representation hence they cannot be conveyed to the blind. But those who have eyes can see them, and in that sense know them. Further, they can be explained by reference to a cause. Thus the sensation of redness is the effect of the vibration of a particular ray of light. This is the scientific, in the mind of Plotinus, the only true sense of knowledge, and in this sense only is color a real thing. Now unity cannot be described, and cannot be explained, but it may be felt as we feel color, it is a feeling but it differs from all other feelings in two very remarkable features it is from within and not from without and it is inalienable a man may have no sense of color and yet be a man but the moment the sense of his unity departs he is a man no more thus that which cannot be known is not real does not exist is yet in the view of plotinus the most certain and the most important of all things End of section 14. Section 15 of Neoplatonism by Charles Big. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 15 Doctrine of God Plotinus is by no means a methodical writer. He expands his conception of the Deity over and over again in many different parts of the Enneads, and in many different connections. It will be necessary before we have done to formulate what he has said and explain its bearings but to begin with we shall best consult the interests of the reader by translating with occasional condensations one of the more important passages and thus putting him in a position to judge for himself we will start with the first book of the fifth ennead which is entitled of the three principal hypostases here the motive of the investigation is supplied by the question of moral evil What can it be that caused the soul of man to forget its father, God, and to be ignorant both of itself and of him? The root of the disaster must be sought in the manifold nature of the soul, in its audacity and desire for independence. Like a child that has been long absent from home and brought up abroad, it does not know its father, and therefore cannot perfectly know itself. It has learned to honour things that are below itself, the pleasures of this world. But he who honours and admires confesses himself by that very act to be inferior. And when the soul thus deliberately sets itself beneath the things of a day, it makes itself the least honourable, the most mortal of all things, and can form no idea of the nature or the power of God. There are two ways in which we may endeavour to raise the soul again from this miserable fall, by convincing it of the baseness of the attractions of earth, or by teaching it its own high birth and dignity this latter method is by far the more important for without it we cannot even make the former intelligible thus plotinus places the new birth before repentance but indeed in the intellectual system of neoplatonism what the new testament means by repentance will be sought for in vain we are to rise first to the conception of the true existence of god and this knowledge will of itself cure the audacity of the soul first then let every soul consider this how by breathing life into them soul made all animals the creatures of earth sea air the divine stars in heaven made the sun made the great firmament above us and not only made but ordered it so that it swings round in due course yet is this soul a different nature from what it orders and moves and vivifies it must needs then be more precious than its creations For they are born and when the soul which ministers their life abandons them they die but the soul ever is because it never abandons itself and if it be asked how the life is ministered in the whole or in the part let us frame the answer thus let this great soul be gazed upon by another soul a human soul which itself is no small one and is deemed worthy so to gaze because it has escaped from all deceit and from all that bewitches the soul of other men And is calm and tranquil let such a soul banish all that disturbs let the body that envelops it be still and all the frettings of the body and all that surrounds it let earth and sea and air be still and heaven itself and let the man think of soul as streaming pouring rushing shining into him from all sides while he stands quiet as the rays of the sun striking upon some dark mass of cloud make it shine with the splendour of gold so also soul coming into the body of heaven gave it life and immortality and woke it up from sleep thus heaven being moved with an everlasting movement by the wise guidance of soul became a happy creature and the indwelling of soul gave high dignity to heaven which was before dead stuff earth and water or rather the darkness of matter and no thing and abhorred as the poet says by the gods The nature and power of soul will become still clearer and more distinct if we consider how it embraces and guides the heaven by its will for it gives itself to all this huge bulk and there is no particle of space great or small that is not filled with soul of the body one part is here another there some parts are opposed some are interdependent but with the soul it is otherwise it is not cut up into little bits so that each particle makes a different life but all things live by the whole soul and it is all present everywhere like to the father who begot it both in unity and in ubiquity heaven is vast and disparate but by virtue of soul it is one and a god the sun too is a god because it has soul and so are the other stars and so are we if we are anything for the dead are viler than dung now what makes gods must be older than they and our soul belongs to the same family And, when you can see it purged from all accretions, you will find the same precious thing, soul, more precious by far than anything that is corporeal. For all such things are earth. And if they be fire, what is that part of the fire which burns? It is the same with all that is compounded of the elements, even if you add to them water and air. And if the things of earth are worthy of desire, only because they have soul, why should man forsake himself to desire another? when thou reverest the soul in another thou art revering thyself since then soul is so precious and divine a thing believing henceforth that thou hast a strong helper in thy quest after god take this cause with thee and go up to him who is yonder and of a truth thou wilt find him not far off for there is not much between grasp then what is diviner than this divine the soul's neighbour above after whom and from whom the soul is For though the soul is a thing, as our argument proved, it is an image of intelligence. As the word which is uttered springs from the word in man's soul, so is the all-soul, and the whole energy by which it shoots forth life to give existence to other things, a word of intelligence. Just as in fire we can distinguish the essential heat from the sensible heat, which it sends forth, only in the world yonder we must think of the heat not as actually streaming forth, but as partly abiding in its source partly coming into existence inasmuch then as it comes forth from intelligence the soul is intelligent and its intelligence shows itself in reasonings and its perfection is derived from him who is as it were the father who begot it so that the child is not perfect as compared with the father its existence then is derived from intelligence and is the energizing word of the intelligence to which it looks up for when it gazes on intelligence, it possesses its ideas and activities from within, as its own property. And these are the only true activities of the soul, which it possesses intellectually and by inheritance. The inferior movements come from another source, and are affections of an inferior soul. Intelligence then makes it doubly divine, because it is its father, and because it dwells within it. For there is nothing betwixt, save their essential difference, but the one is after and recipient the other is form. But even the matter of intelligence is beautiful, because it is intelligent and simple as is the intelligence itself. And even from this it is evident that the intelligence is better than the soul, which is of such a nature. The reader will here observe that intelligence stands to soul in the relation of form to word, hence of father and superior, because the higher and prior is giver always and never receiver. Further, as form may be analysed, being a larger conception than word, soul may be spoken of as in a sense the matter of intelligence. And it will be noticed that Plotinus speaks here of two souls. The first, which has no affections, is the divine. The soul second and inferior is that of nature, of heaven and earth, and of the body generally. This too is divine, but in a much lower sense. The distinction is one of the most difficult points in the system of Plotinus. But it will become a little clearer as we proceed we resume the translation the same thing may be seen in the following way we admire this visible universe when we behold its vastness and its beauty and the order of its everlasting movement and the gods that are therein some visible some invisible and the demons and animals and all the host of plants it is well but go up to the archetype and true world And yonder see the intellectual patterns of all, everlasting in their own right, in their native wisdom and life. See to their prince the undefiled intelligence and perfect wisdom, the true Saturnian life of God, who is fullness and intelligence. For he embraces in himself all that is immortal, all intelligence, all God, all soul, ever abiding. For why should he seek to change, being perfect? And whither need he go, since he has all in himself? And how can he grow since he is absolutely complete wherefore also all that is with him is perfect that he may be absolutely perfect having nothing which is imperfect having nothing in himself which he does not think and he need not search for his thoughts because he has them and his blessedness is not acquired but all is in eternity and this is the true eternity which time counterfeits as it runs round the soul passing over some thoughts and attending to others for to the soul belongs sequence of ideas at one time it considers socrates at another a horse always some one definite object but intelligence grasps all it has then within itself all things abiding in the same state it is it is always am and never shall be never have been for yonder there is no future and no past but all things abide because they are the same and satisfied with themselves as they are and each of them is intelligence and being, and the sum total is all intelligence and all being, intelligence by thinking making being, and being by being thought giving to intelligence the act of thought and being. But the act of thought has a cause other than itself, which is cause also of being. Both then have a cause. Things yonder coexist, and never fail one another, but still here we have a duality which makes a unity, intelligence and being, thinker and thought. Intelligence corresponding to thinker, as being does to thought. Now there can be no thinking without difference, or without identity. Hence we obtain as our first conceptions intelligence, being, difference, identity. To these we must add movement and rest. Intelligence must have movement to think, rest to be changeless, difference to be at once thinker and thought. If you take away the difference it becomes one, and will keep silence. The several objects of thought also must be different from one another, yet the same, because each is one with itself, and there is something common in all, yet the differentia is anotherness. And these aspects of intelligence, being many, make number and quantity, and the individuality of the ideas makes quality also, and these ideal distinctions are the principles from which sensible distinctions proceed. The five attributes here ascribed to intelligence are borrowed from the sophistes of Plato, and are called by Plotinus, in his criticism of the categories, the five Summa genera of true existence, the five ultimate laws of being. They have been explained in outline in the preceding chapter. We have here three final antitheses, thought and being, motion and rest, sameness and difference. They must not be obliterated, because on them depend all life and all knowledge. They account for everything. If they do not exist, there is nothing for us to know. Yet again they must be reconciled, or knowledge itself is divided, and ceases to be knowledge. Plotinus finds a reconciliation, though not an absolutely complete reconciliation, in the intelligence of God. In him, thought can be seen as the cause of being. In him, as indeed in all abstract contemplation, subject and object are identical. The thinker thinks himself. God ever thinks the whole of himself, is absolutely conscious. There is therefore no change. Yet consciousness itself is an act, and therefore dual. It carries with it life, which is quick and diverse. Hence, even in this sameness there is motion, a play of activity. God is living thought. The unity is as nearly complete as anything that we can grasp. Still, it is not ideally perfect, and must therefore be regarded as given, as derived. What then is the ultimate cause of all? Whence then came this manifold God, this One Many? We can see now the necessity of this diversity of being, but we crave for some solution of the problem that has always vexed philosophy, how from the absolutely One anything at all came into existence, whether a multitude or a duality. Why did it not remain by itself? Let us seek an answer, calling God himself to our aid, not with audible words, But reaching out in prayer with our soul for that is the way in which we can pray alone to him alone he then that would behold him who dwells in the innermost shrine by himself and remains tranquil beyond all must fix his gaze on that which in comparison with the statues in the outer shrine abides or rather on the first statue coming forth and revealing itself in this wise all that is moved must have something towards which it moves now since he has nothing We must not suppose that he is moved, but whatsoever comes into being after him must have come into being, because he turned himself towards himself. We must not really think of birth in time, when we are thinking of things that ever are, though in word we cannot help ascribing becoming to them, when we assign to them a cause and an order. And so we must say that they became without his moving, for if he moved, the thing which became would be third in order, his movement being the first and he himself the second. If then the thing was second, it must have taken existence without his moving or inclining or wishing or stirring in any way. How can this be? And what must we think about him who abides? We may conceive that though he abides, there is a shining round about him like the bright light of the sun, which ever runs round about the sun, though the sun abides. Similarly, all things, so long as they abide, give forth necessarily an essence, which flows outwards and envelops them. And depends upon the power that is present within, a sort of image of the archetypes from which they sprang. So fire gives forth its heat, and snow does not keep its coldness hidden within. And sweet smelling things in particular show what we mean, for as long as they exist, something goes forth from them and surrounds them, and this is an essence which all bystanders enjoy. So all things, so soon as they are perfect, beget. That, then, which is always perfect, always begets an everlasting offspring, yet always something that is less than itself. What, then, shall we say of the most perfect of all? Nothing comes from him except the greatest things that follow him. Now the greatest thing that follows him and is second is intelligence. For intelligence looks to him and wants him alone, but he does not want intelligence. And that which is begotten of him that is better than intelligence is intelligence, and intelligence is better than all things, because all things are after it. For instance, even soul is a word, an energy of intelligence, as intelligence is of the One. But the word of soul is dim, for it is a phantom of intelligence, and must look up to intelligence. And so intelligence must look up to the One, that it may be intelligence. But it sees him not as disparate, but because it is after him. There is nothing between any more than there is between soul and intelligence now all that is begotten yearns for the begetter and finds its satisfaction in him and especially so when begotten and begetter are unique and when the best of all is begetter of necessity the begotten is with him so that they are separated by their difference alone how then does the one beget intelligence his image because by turning himself to himself he began to see And this seeing is intelligence the one is the power of all things intelligence separates itself as it were from the power and sees its effects Plotinus here expresses the kindly intention of speaking more clearly and the reader will probably feel anxious for more light but the text suddenly breaks down into a gulf of corruption and such part of it as might be translated does not greatly help in some mystic way by turning itself to itself yet without moving The one became conscious, the intelligence was filled with ideas, the soul with forms, the words shot forth to quicken matter, and the great stream of life began. Each looked up to the cause above it, to the light of the abiding sun, and drank in life, meaning, power, according to the measure of its capacity. The two great difficulties are, first, the notion of a cause acting by attraction, when there is nothing for it to attract, and second, the becoming conscious. The first may be put aside for the present. As to the second, we have seen that it admits of explanation, in so far as it finds an analogy in the nature of human individuality. We do become conscious. All that Plotinus asks of the reader is to put away the notion of becoming. The divine intelligence never faints or sleeps like ours. But as we have a oneness, so has he. We will omit a passage of some length in which Plotinus brings his teaching into relation with mythology and with the views of earlier philosophers, and proceed with the tenth chapter, which will show us how close was the link between his psychology and his metaphysics. We have shown that above being must be the One, and after him intelligence and soul. But now as these three are in nature, so must they also be in us. Our soul then also is divine and of another, not a sensible nature, like all soul. And it is perfect when it has intelligence. But there are two kinds of intelligence, one which argues, one which gives the power of arguing. The arguing part of the soul, then, which needs for the performance of its function no bodily organ, but possesses its energy in purity, so that it is able to argue purely, is separable, and not mixed with body. About this there can be no mistake. We must give it a home in the realm of the intelligible. We must not seek a place to fix it in. It is outside all place. For so alone can it be independent, external, immaterial, if it stands alone and owes nothing to the flesh. Therefore Plato saith of the world, And further the Creator clothed it with the soul as with a garment, meaning that part of the soul which abides in the intelligible world. And of man he saith that he lifts up his head to heaven, And when we exhort men to detachment, we do not mean that the soul is to be locally detached by physical separation, but we mean that it should not condescend. We are speaking of the imagination and of estrangement from the body, if it be possible to lead and carry upwards not only the higher form of the soul, but that also which has its abode in this world, which alone is the creator and molder of the body, and is busied with the body. Here we have the platonic division of the soul itself into two parts, a higher and a lower. This will receive explanation further on. Since then there is a soul which reasons about things just and beautiful. And since there is a power of reasoning which asks, Is this just? Is this beautiful? The just must be an abiding thing. And from that thing the soul acquires the power of reasoning about it. How else could it reason about it? But the soul sometimes reasons about these things and sometimes does not. There must then be in us an intelligence which does not reason, but always has the idea of justice. Further, there must be in us the principle, the cause, the God of intelligence. For he is not divisible, but abides, and since it is not in space that he abides, is seen in many, according as each is able to receive him as another self. So also the centre of a circle is in itself, and yet contains in itself every point that is in the circle, and the radii derive their peculiar nature from it. For by that within us which is like the radius we touch that centre, and are with it, and depend upon it. And those of us who bend thitherwards are fast rooted in it. How is it, then, that though we possess such high faculties we do not apprehend, but leave them, for the most part of our time, idle? Nay, some never use them at all. The answer is that the intelligence and the One are always active, and thus the soul possesses everlasting movement. It does not follow that when we have no sense of them they are not there. For all that is the soul is not instantly sensible. Faculties come to us when they come into consciousness. But when a faculty does not communicate with the perceptions of sense, it has not yet permeated the whole soul. In such a case we do not yet know, because not merely a part of the soul, but the whole soul is absorbed in sense perception. Furthermore, every part of a thing that has soul while it lives discharges without intermission its own function. But knowledge does not begin till there is communication and apprehension. If then there is to be apprehension of what is intellectually present, the apprehending faculty must turn inwards and fix its attention yonder. Just as a singer who wants to catch a note must shut out all other notes and strain his ear to catch the true note when it comes, so in this world we must shut out physical sounds, except so far as is necessary, and keep the apprehensive power of the soul clean and ready to hear the voices from above. The word rendered apprehension means both grasping and help. Sense supplies the soul with a type, or imprint, of the thing as it is seen. Intelligence supplies the soul with the idea or form of the thing, as it ought to be. By grasping the forms, the soul interprets the types, just as the singer, by means of the true note which his art supplies, recognizes, and if need be, corrects, the note emitted by his lyre or voice. Thus, without apprehension and communication, there can be no real knowledge. Intelligence and sense knowledge must chime together, as it were. And this correspondence of the two faculties is known as co-perception. The understanding criticizing the types supplied by sense sees the forms, and sees them by what we may call co-perception. If we conceive of an earthly clock with a heavenly chiming apparatus, we shall get some idea of what Plotinus means. When the two are exactly together, the time is right. The chime is always there, but not always audible, because the clock has a will of its own, and goes its own way. Thus eternity comes to differ from time, but this is a point that must lie by till we come to consider the nature of moral evil. End of section 15 Section 16 of Neoplatonism by Charles Big. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 16. God, His Nature and Operations Plotinus, like all his school, admitted the existence of a number of lower deities. Heaven with its stars, nature, earth, the demons. All these, in their degree, are causes and deserve worship. But the supreme cause, God in the proper sense of the word, stands far above all these created deities and embraces in himself a unity of three hypostases. Hypostasis is a Stoic word which is generally used as equivalent to usia, or being. But it signifies more exactly the underlying cause of the phenomenal manifestation. Hence it can be applied equally to all three persons of the Platonic Trinity, while being could only be used of the second and third. This again explains why the Eastern theologians adopted this word to denote persons of the Christian Trinity, for they also commonly speak of God the Father as beyond being. Each hypostasis is a person, but a purely intellectual person. All three are one, like three mutually enfolding thoughts, and where one is, there is the all in the fullness of its power. All are eternal, but the second is inferior to the first, because begotten, and the third to the second, for the same reason. The first is the one, the good. The two names mean the same thing. Unity is life, and fullness of life is the good towards which everything strives. The One is the fountain of life, the power of all things, but for that very reason He is none of them. He has no form, no beauty, no virtue, no will, no thought, no consciousness, no movement or activity, no being. The second is intelligence, the One Many, the intelligible world. Plotinus expressly refuses to apply to him the title Logos, which in his system means little more than physical force. Here life and thought are in full play. Here are all the ideas, not stored away in memory, for God has no memory, but all always equally vivid, in infinite diversity and eternal sameness. Each thought of the divine mind involves each and all the rest. Hence each idea is in a sense the whole mind, nous. Yet each is separate, has a life, an energy of its own, is not intelligence, but an intelligence. This is the highest conception of being. Thought is being, makes being by thinking it. And on this plane the thinker is the thought, the thought is the thinker. The third is soul, the one and many. The one abides, but the many is increasing, and on the road to preponderance. Plotinus insists on the importance of a just knowledge of soul. It gives us information in both directions. On one side it is in touch with intelligence, on another with nature above it is day beyond it is darkness it is the outer ring of the circle or like the moon the two higher hypostases being as it were the light and the sun it is the god that is nearest to us the life that we know the being that is most properly ourselves the spirit within us the beautiful world spread round about us is soul yet it is precisely here that difficulties accumulate the reason is obvious soul is the central knot in the system of Plotinus. Under this heading he has to grapple with the insoluble difficulty of all philosophy. Here, if anywhere, must be found the synthesis of all the antitheses, physical, intellectual, and moral, the one and the many, thought and extension, good and evil, time and eternity, freedom and necessity, God and man. Part of the difficulty the Neoplatonists met, as we have seen, by the distinction between mind and matter. Matter is really no thing. Yet it is the cause of divisibility and sensible existence. This is the congenital defect of all Platonism. It admits a cause which is not a cause, and in spite of all its protests limits God by something that is not himself. It follows that when God draws near to matter, he must undergo an evolution and a differentiation. There are in fact two souls, one that of God, which is pure thought, one that of nature, which is power. And in man these two come into contact and even into antagonism on one side the divine soul gives off a stream of life which grows weaker as it flows onwards which though never wholly unintelligent is instinct rather than reason soul becomes nature the forms or thoughts become words powers forces these words enter into partnership with matter and create bodies including that of man on the other side as intelligence embraced the sum of separate intelligences so soul enfolds within itself all individual souls they are it and it is they and these individual souls led by natural desire come down to guard and care for the bodies that the word has built for them though never breaking away from their source thus man and indeed all that lives has a double soul one which makes his visible frame another which rides upon it and governs it like the pilot of a ship one which has sense and desire, another which regulates and controls the senses and the desires, bringing with it, to use again our former illustration, the right time from heaven, and so checking the aberrations of the earthly clock. These souls are all distinct, yet they are also all one, and Protinus constantly passes over from one to the other, especially from the soul of God to the soul of man, without warning the reader what he is doing. It is necessary to exercise the greatest caution, and even then it is only too possible to go wrong, on a point where such scholarly interpreters of Neoplatonism as Kirchner and Zeller are at variance. If we are to gather a clear conception of the soul of God, we must keep in mind a passage where Plotinus has expressed himself more distinctly than is his wont. 5. Parts 3 and 9. He who would know what intelligence is must understand soul, and the divinest part of soul. You may gain this understanding by stripping off first the body of man your own body next the soul which molded this body sense must be laid aside with the greatest care and desire and anger and all such absurd emotions as inclining strongly to what is mortal what is left is this soul which we called an image of intelligence guarding a portion of the light of that sun the better soul then has no emotions no consciousness of the world below no senses and no faculty that requires sense as the condition of its exercise. It is, in fact, nothing but a paler copy of intelligence. It thinks, but with a difference. What it thinks is form, a weakened idea, answering to our general conception, only that it is derived from above and not from below, and is archetype, not type. The forms are not its own, but given to it. Hence subject and object are not identical. Soul thinks itself as another. The thought is recognized as coming as imparted further the soul is no longer the fullness of thought all the forms are there but attention has begun one object is more luminously present than another in the passage translated in the last chapter plotinus ascribes to the soul a sequence of notions at one time it looks on socrates at another on a horse and so forth but elsewhere four parts four and one It is explained that this sequence is of order, and not of time, as when we look upon the countenance of a friend we may be more distinctly conscious of his eyes, though at the same time we see all the features. So too he speaks of it as reasoning, but not like man when he schemes, contrives, or grapples with difficulties. The soul has no practical difficulties to contend with. Its reasoning is merely the endeavour to appropriate and identify itself with the ideas that it beholds in the intelligence it is not in time though time is its offspring being a concomitant of the lower forms of its activity of those separate lives which succeed one another and are some longer some shorter nor is it divisible though it has a nature which lends itself to the semblance of division when it comes into contact with matter it assumes a limit takes upon it a definite extension as the indivisible light of the sun parts and distributes itself into the different chambers of a house It will readily be perceived, from this laborious and still obscure description, that the divine soul is of little intellectual or religious significance in the mind of Plotinus. But on the physical side, soul is all-important. It is the great reservoir from which flow all the minor conduits of life and force. It supplies the key to creation, and thus again enables us to comprehend, admire, rest satisfied with the world in which we live. In this way it comes to have even considerable religious weight because it is the safeguard against pessimism. All things were made by God, and all are beautiful and good, so far as they can reflect the divine idea, and can lead us up to their author. The chief logical difficulty in the way of Plotinus is his conception of cause. He regards it as drawing, not as pushing, as attracting like a magnet or gravitation, not as going forth to mould. There is but one movement, all things strive towards God, Each looks up to that above it. Any other view in his opinion makes God dependent. He holds his theory consistently in all that concerns the moral or intellectual life. But it will not explain how things came to be. Involution cannot account for evolution. He meets the difficulty by maintaining that nothing came to be, that all is in fact equally eternal. God cannot plan or scheme. Creation is as old as himself. Where he is, there is life. The work of creation, if we may use the phrase, is compared to a full cup running over, to the evening light striking upon the clouds, to the scent diffused about a flower. But these are mere metaphors. When we turn towards the real, we must put away the illusion of becoming. In him there is no shadow of change. Change is the failure of matter to maintain its footing within the circle of light. But the lower soul has desire, enters into the body, cares for it, guards it where then does this desire come from plutarch found it in matter and believed accordingly in an evil god plotinus would on no account admit this but then desire like all else must flow from the one and this again he would not admit thus again he leaves an all-important word without any sort of explanation the divine soul is split into two one half comes straight down the other runs round a corner and when it reappears as nature, has somehow got a new faculty. But how? As a theory of life, then, the system of Plotinus is open to the grave objection that it does not account for that desire of the soul for the body, which yet he regards as the basis of physical existence. As a theory of knowledge, the notion of an attracting self-contained cause is intelligible enough. We commonly speak of the mind as seeking, as drawn onwards by the truth. And the love of the soul for the one would be a sufficient explanation of mental activity without our supposing that the truth has any wish to be known even in the sphere of morality and the spiritual experience the notion is capable of consistent application and it was consistently applied but only at a tremendous cost according to plotinus god is goodness without love man may love god but god cannot love man religion is the desire for the star Man can reach the star, and cannot be happy unless he does, but the star does not know anything about him, and does not care whether he reaches it or not. We see here the full meaning of the derision which Celsus pours upon the Incarnation. According to the Platonist, God could not possibly come down. The words, No man can come unto me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, are half Platonic, and half the contradiction of Platonism. The deity of plotinus draws but could neither send nor think of sending anyone it is not easy to combine the belief in providence or the practice of prayer with an absolute introverted deity man must approach the supreme intelligence as we have seen with prayer that is with devotion not supplication with the unspoken prayer of apollonius and clement the philosopher could not say "O oh, send out thy light and thy truth All he could do was to turn his soul towards the light and wait. Petitions are addressed by those who are not philosophers to the inferior gods, the sun and stars. Hence, Plotinus treats prayer in the proper sense of the word, under the heading of magic. The sun, being a god, cannot see or hear or remember. But being involved in nature, he comes under the general law of natural sympathy. A certain thrill may pass from the worshipper to him, just as one string of a lyre will vibrate when another is struck. Evil prayers cannot touch the gods at all. Providence was one of the Platonist war cries. The school regarded themselves as the champions of this belief against Epicurean atheists, Aristotelian deists, Stoic fatalists, and Gnostic dualists. Plotinus explains the subject at great length, but he spends his force mainly in accounting for evil, which he would not allow to be in any way connected with God particular providence which plutarch celsus and maximus Tarius ascribed to the demons he denies it is irreconcilable with the eternity of creation and implies foreseeing and planning in the deity all that is left then is the belief that the world as a whole is in accordance with intelligence and admits of a rational explanation the difference between the neoplatonists and the rival schools lies in the conception of god and of his relation to the world as against the epicurean Plotinus maintained that God does nothing but works great things, as against the Gnostic, that he is the good, as against the Stoic, that he is transcendent, as against the Peripatetic, that he draws men to himself. If the theology of Plotinus might be labelled with a phrase, we should call it centripetal theism. End of section 16 Section 17 of Neoplatonism by Charles Big. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. CHAPTER SEVENTEEN MAN IN NATURE Plotinus seldom touches upon physical science. He has been blamed for this, but hardly with justice. He was a metaphysician, and all we can ask of such an one is, that his speculations should neither be inconsistent with what is known, nor discourage further research. That he was not unscientific, as the word was then understood, is shown by the numbers of physicians, musicians, and mathematicians who were attracted by his teaching. Nor does there seem to be any reason why a modern chemist should not be a Neoplatonist if he chose. To Plotinus, physical science could not mean the knowledge of matter, because matter was no thing. Its field was the relation of God to the world, the mode of the combination of life with matter. Two ideas were of great importance in his mind. The first is that causation excludes necessity. Everything has a cause, but there is a hierarchy of causes. Of these all are in their degree intelligent, and the soul of man even possesses a certain power of self-determination. Whereas fatalism reduces everything to one, even the distinction of cause and effect is lost. The second is that unity does not destroy individuality. The One is wholly everywhere, because life is not divisible. All souls are one because they come from the One, yet they are distinct numerically as thoughts in the same mind, and they differ even in quality. If providence were all, there would be no providence, for there would be nothing for it to provide for. It must have an object. It comes to that object, for instance to man, not to destroy him, but to cooperate with him, in such a way as to leave his manhood intact. Of individuality, Plotinus says that nothing that is can perish. These two propositions are in fact corollaries of the fundamental Platonic contention that being is not one, but many. In the world of becoming there is endless multiplicity, things or bodies of every sort and kind. They are made not directly by the soul of God, but by nature, the world spirit. Nature supplies the word which, as we have seen, imposes bulk, shape, and quality upon matter. Nature is the sum of words as the soul is of forms, and the intelligence of ideas. She is life, a word, a creating power, a sole offspring of the earlier soul. Compared with the divine, her consciousness is like that of sleep compared with waking. She is in fact a buffer soul, inserted to disguise the transition from the inward to the outward action of God, and from the thought to desire, and for this latter purpose she creates yet another buffer soul her weakness is the reason why she creates production says plotinus is the result of insufficient power of contemplation as we see in the case of the geometer who is obliged to call sight to his aid and draw his diagrams on paper because his intelligence is not vivid enough to reason about them without this help thus euclid writes a book and nature creates a world a theory externalizes itself and projects a theorem the words or forces differ and produce accordingly different kinds of bodies, inorganic and organic, stones, plants, animals, men. According to their different degree of receptivity, nature supplies them with a natural soul, the other soul, shadow of a soul, word of a soul, which brings with it the lower powers of life, the vegetative and the sentient. To each body, God gives what it is capable of using, and no more. The union of this lower soul with the body makes the compositum, the animal but man has also a higher soul the true ego it comes to him straight from god and is like god to the lower belong the animal life pleasure and pain desire anger sense the higher differs from the divine only in this that while connected with the body it possesses memory imagination discursive reasoning and a finite will faculties which form a link between the absolute and the conditioned intelligence The soul proper comes down to occupy the body which nature has prepared and endowed for it. No force is needed. It comes neither willingly nor sent, but driven by natural instinct, because that to which it comes needs its fostering care. When men desire to secure the presence of a god, they build a temple or a statue fit for him, capable of receiving him, and then his power descends and dwells among them. So nature makes an idol, and then places her handiwork under the patronage of the divine. Plotinus could not quite make up his mind whether the coming down of the soul was a sin or not. It was a necessary part of his system. But the tradition of his school held that it was a chastisement, and worked out this view of the penal character of earthly existence by the addition of the fanciful doctrine of the transmigration of the human soul into the body of brutes. This Plotinus could not bring himself to deny. It was part of his religion, though not of his philosophy. Hence he vacillates. At one time he speaks of the soul as coming down through desire of being its own master, through honouring things inferior to itself. At others soul joins body for the perfection of the whole. It does good in coming down because it shows in act its marvellous power. Had there been no souls, the infinite richness of the ideal would have been unknown. Better for the soul to stay at home. Yet we must not be indignant with her for coming, even though on earth she gains the sad knowledge of evil for the experience of evil begets a clearer knowledge of the good in those whose powers are too feeble to discern evil scientifically without experience adds four eight parts five to eight here the philosopher speaks the current conception of the relation of soul to body was absolutely reversed by plotinus the soul is not in the body on the contrary the body is in the soul like a net in the sea pervaded yet transcended soul the ego rides upon body like a pilot on a ship man's feet are on earth but his head is in heaven the soul is never separated from the first cause each soul is in contact with all three of the divine hypostases but here again comes in the doctrine of receptivity the union may be dormant man has only what he uses hence there will be three classes of men those in whom soul is operative those in whom intelligence and those in whom the good Man's demon or guardian angel is the faculty next above that which in his conduct he obeys. The world, according to Plotinus, is not only the best possible world, but the only possible world, the self-evolution of the One, reflecting in all its parts the glory and wisdom of its Maker. It is the one face seen in many mirrors, the one voice heard in many ears, a copy, though a pale copy, of the eternal archetype. This Plotinus presses very strongly against the half-Christian Gnostics. They desire, he says, a new earth, to which they hope to go. But why do they profess to love the pattern, when they disparage that of which it is the pattern? Against dualistic pessimism this argument is unanswerable. The Christian might reply that on the showing of Plotinus himself the pattern is better, and thus he might justify his yearning for heaven. Plotinus would have retorted that in the mystic vision the philosopher possesses the All, the Archetype, even here upon Earth. Hence his serene content is strongly contrasted with the divine discontent of the Christian. The question arises whether his mysticism is reasonable, and whether his vision is possible. That the world is imperfect, Plotinus knew full well. If it were perfect, it would be God. He grapples manfully with the problem of what is called physical evil. Partly he found a reason for it in the resistance of matter. The word cannot always control or penetrate the medium of its manifestation. Partly it is to be regarded as a chastisement for antenatal sin. Partly he denied that it was evil. It is necessary to the all. The part cannot be perfect in the same sense as the whole. The statue must have feet as well as a face. We must not take tears as a criterion of evil. Children weep over what is not harmful. Life is a drama. It has a unity though its parts are at war one plays the hero another the clown the poet assigns to each his role because he is what he is and as he plays well or ill gives him a better or a worse place in other dramas hardship strengthens men and makes them better life is a constant battle with difficulties in which we may expect god's help if we take god's way but not otherwise providence does not leave man to perish but is always calling him to better things the divine law says that to the good life shall be good and vice versa plotinus did not deny the difference between good and evil fortune but he minimized it the nature of the whole is mixed but if anyone detaches his soul the rest is no great matter in this cheerful manly view we read the difference between stoicism and platonism the former said that the rest that is to say such part of our environment as we cannot control Did not matter at all. How Plotinus dealt with moral evil we shall see later on. One very remarkable feature of the Plotinian view of nature is expressed by the word sympathy. Every part of the whole, by virtue of its provenance from the One, is set in the same key and vibrates in unison. And this sympathetic affection does not require contact, but is capable of acting at a distance. By this thrill of affinity Plotinus explains sensation. He went so far as to affirm that, if there were another world, we should not be able to perceive it, even if it were exactly like our own, because the soul that made it would not be in touch with ours. But in this way he was able to defend astrology and magic. The stars do not cause good or evil fortune, yet as all nature is interdependent, their movements may prognosticate. Magic cannot affect the higher soul, but it has power over the lower, by subtle physical influences, which it has at its command. In this way even a good man may be bewitched, and in consequence may suffer disease or even death. Nor can he ward off these baleful assaults, except by the use of counter-charms. The demons have power over him to this extent. He is subject to their malefic influences, so far as his life is relative. Plotinus saw no essential difference between the art of the physician and that of the enchanter. Both made use of natural powers in this way as we have seen and in this very connection he explained the power of prayer to move at any rate the lower gods it is possible that he held proudly aloof from these vulgar superstitions but at least he left the gate wide open yet we may notice that he does not seem to have made any use of mesmerism or artificial means to induce the mystic vision the position of man is therefore a double one as regards his body and his irrational soul he is entangled in the chain of physical causation and has but a limited power of self-assertion only in his ego can he be free end of section 17 section 18 of neoplatonism by charles big this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter 18 the immortality of the soul we must content ourselves with setting before the reader an abstract of the famous argument of Plotinus on the soul's immortality 5, 7. The Platonist had to establish two propositions, one, that the soul is not a body, two, that it is not a harmony or form, or as we might say, function of a body. If he could demonstrate these two points, it follows that the soul must belong to the immaterial, intelligible world that it is a real being or Uziah, and therefore eternal. 1. The critique of materialism is based partly on the conception of life, partly on that of unity. The soul has life of itself. This is not true of any material substance, not even of the four elements. They never exhibit life, except as something that has obviously been brought to them. But if no one material substance possesses life, no aggregate of such substances can generate it. The unintelligent cannot beget the intelligent. Indeed no body can so much as exist without soul. Organism implies an organizing principle. For a word comes to the matter and makes it a body, and the word can only come from soul. Some, Leucippus Democritus and Epicurus, built up the world out of atoms. An atom has no magnitude and no qualities. Since it has no magnitude, no number of them will form a bulk. Since it has no qualities, it can never give birth to sympathy. But the characteristic of soul is that each part is in sympathy with the others, and with the whole. It cannot be, as the Stoics asserted, an affection of matter. For matter does not shape itself, or put life into itself. Where, then, does the affection come from? There must be some giver of life outside and above all material nature. For there could not be such a thing as a body if there were no soul power, Perhaps even matter itself could not exist, and all would go to wreck, if there were no order, no word, no intelligence. Again if it were a body, life would possess one definite set of attributes. Whereas life causes many and diverse, heat and cold, colour and others, it would have but one movement, that of gravitation, but again it has many. It is the cause of growth, yet it does not grow. It has no size, no parts. Further, the immateriality of the soul results from a consideration of its powers. From sense, the sentient subject is one. When we perceive an object, the eye reports one sensation. The ear, it may be another. The sensations are combined. At the same time they are distinguished, because there is one percipient faculty, as it were, at the centre of a circle, whose radii are represented by the different senses. From memory, if the soul is a body, we must suppose that perception imprints a kind of stamp upon it. The imprint will decay, or later imprints will obliterate it. In either case there will be no memory. From pain, the finger is hurt and the ego feels the smart. Some explain this fact by transmission. Are we to say, then, that first the finger is pained, next to the nerve, next to the brain, and lastly the percipient? No, there is one pain, not many. Again, each link in the chain would know only what was reported to it by the last link. The mind would be aware that the brain was suffering, not that the finger was hurt. It follows that the soul must be in union with the whole body. It must be one and the same in every part. From the power of abstract thought, what thinks the immaterial cannot be material, and from the capacity for aesthetic and moral ideas, if the soul is corporeal, is virtue a kind of spirit or breath? Granting that a spirit might be strong or beautiful, how could it be just or chaste? Virtue again comes and goes, but if the soul be material, it must always remain as it is. It was maintained by some in the time of Plotinus that the soul was a physical force, analogous to heat. To this he answers that force is not material, and that forces of mind, thought, perception, desire, differ in kind from the forces of nature. A further argument is based upon the impossibility of conceiving the mode of combination of soul and body, if both are material. Lastly, Plotinus considers and rejects a peculiar Stoic view, which regarded mind as produced out of matter by a process of evolution. It is expressed by four words denoting four successive stages of existence condition, nature, soul, intelligence, which correspond to the modes of being of a jelly, a jellyfish, a monkey, and a man. Truly there is nothing new under the sun, and we have here the first rough draft of Darwinism struck out by some doctor of the porch. Plotinus remarks upon this curious anticipation of our modern perplexities, that it puts the worst first, and makes the existence of God hypothetical. Again, that if condition, or let us say inorganic nature, comes first, there is nothing to account for the evolution, nothing to set things going. The jelly cannot evolve itself. It must have some definite goal. It cannot be thought of as sallying forth at random in quest of the unknown. The attracting cause must be there, before the evolution begins. That is to say, mind and intelligence must be prior to inorganic nature, and not posterior. The argument is directed primarily to establish the pre-existence of God, but the human soul is part of God, and so what is true of the one is true of the other. We may notice that Protinus does not here deny the possibility of physical evolution, that is, the growth of more perfect out of less perfect bodies. What he traverses is the evolution of life. Physical evolution is not incompatible with his general view. He admitted a periodicity of nature, a constant succession of youth, maturity and death, in the whole as in the parts, and any amount of phenomenal change he could account for. On the other hand, he believed in permanence of type, there is, however, a curious and obscure passage, five nine thirteen, in which it is argued that the contents of the ideal world may be larger than those of the phenomenal, and this might be applied to the alteration of existing types, or the emergence of new types. But the question had not yet arisen. The requisite knowledge of nature did not exist. All we can say is that Protinus hit the root of the matter when he asserted that growth without an ordering mind is inconceivable. 2. Soul, then, is different from body. But does it depend on the body? Is it, as many think, a function of the organism? In ancient times this view took two expressions. The Pythagoreans regarded soul as a harmony, the peripatetics as a form, entelechy, of body. When the cords of a lyre are rightly strained, they acquire a certain relation which we call harmony. So it has been held, A certain natural relation of the different elements of which body is composed generates life or soul. But soul is a thing, harmony a relation. Again the mind constantly resists the body. Again if health is harmony, disease is discord, and the soul is changed or gone. Again there must be another soul to make the harmony. The chords cannot tune themselves. Thus soul must come first and strike the keynote. It is impossible to bring music out of discord, or life out of death." The Peripatetic defines soul in much the same way as the form of an organism capable of life. To this Plotinus answers by repeating what is surely a conclusive argument that there is, as a matter of fact, war between the spirit and the flesh. Form again is as divisible as matter. If you break off the leg of a statue, you take away a part of its form. But you may lop off the limbs of a man and yet his ego will remain as whole as ever this is one of butler's arguments and it is not destroyed by the objection that if you hit the man with a stick on a particular spot of his head he will no longer be able to speak if he loses a leg the faculty of sense remains intact though one of its organs is gone and if he loses his brain the power of thought may remain though no longer able to manifest itself by its material vehicle Plotinus held that while form is inseparable, intelligence is separable from the body. This, he thought, was proved by the suspension of the faculties in sleep, and by the nature of abstract thought. From all this the conclusion follows that soul does not exist merely because it is the form of something. It is itself a thing, which does not receive being as a result of its establishment in a body, but as a life of its own, before it comes to belong to this or that animal. The body did not beget the soul what then is it if it is neither a body nor an affection of the body but a mode of moral and physical energy containing many capacities producing many results it must be a kind of thing differing from all material existences clearly it is what we call a being for all bodily existence must be called becoming not being, because it is ever becoming, ever perishing, and never truly is, but lives while it lives, by participation in being, so far as it does participate. Yet another argument for the soul's immortality Plotinus finds in its capacity for virtue, and in the nature of virtue, which reveals the divine image within us. Nothing but evil makes us doubt that we are of one substance with the divine. This fine argument we must leave to the reader's own power of divination. The sum and substance of the whole matter is, that soul is life, and that life is. End of section 18 Section 19 of Neoplatonism by Charles Big. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 19 Ethics Man, as we have seen, belongs to two worlds, And is partly the creature of circumstance partly not he has his feet in the water hence he is compared to a thete or serf who is half slave half free or more aptly still to the dancer in a choir the music has power over him the measure also constrains him but there are certain movements which are all his own plotinus insists very strongly and very often on individuality if god he says were sole cause all would be good Yet everything has a cause, and when the cause is outside the self, it becomes a kind of necessity. What then is the sphere of freedom, and what of necessity? There is an universal belief which tells us that we are free. Yet if we look more closely, it does not say that we are our own masters. Consciousness assures us only of this, that we are free in so far as we can carry out our wishes. In truth, action is never free it is at best of mixed nature because always relative to circumstances we do not what we would but what we can the moment we go outside ourselves we are caught in a stream of causes over which we have no control success is not in our power only right motive and right conduct even the motive is not always free in many cases perhaps in most it is a mere imagination or opinion dictated by our bodily needs All bad men, and in some things even good men, are guided by sense, which is purely relative. Aristotle held that a man was a free agent if he was acquainted with the particulars of his action. If he killed a man, for instance, and knew what he was doing. Plotinus considers that ignorance of the universal, of the moral law, thou shalt do no murder, makes the deed involuntary. Aristotle held that the man ought to know this. But, retorts Plotinus, suppose he does not know, that he ought to know it. Freedom, then, is to be found, not in the outward energy nor in sense-knowledge, but in the wish, and this runs up to intelligence and the knowledge of the good. This is the sole cause of liberty. Those who, by the practice of moral virtue, have attained to a true understanding are emancipated. They have a master, it is true, but they are that which is their master. God himself is not to be called free, because he is the cause of freedom. For man, liberty is nothing else than a living law. will is free when it is at one with the mind of god the power of contraries is not freedom for to be able to do things opposite is a sign of inability to cleave to the best vice therefore in the view of the neoplatonist is involuntary it is in fact the sleep of the soul the bad man uses his bodily faculties but suffers his intelligence to lie dormant so in the assembly when the elders are wrapped in thought the unruly mob craving food and complaining of its discomforts, casts the whole meeting into unseemly uproar. If they will keep quiet, and a word comes to them from some wise signor, the tumult is allayed, and the worst does not prevail. Otherwise, if the better remains silent, the worst prevails, because the clamouring throng cannot receive the word from above. 6, four, fifteen. The soul itself is divine, and can suffer no contamination but it nods and slumbers, and lets go the reins. The cure of this moral evil is to be found in philosophy, which wakes the dreamer, in the drawing of providence, in love of the ideal. Whether the remedy is universally applicable is dubious. It is a favorite idea with Plotinus that men are divided into three classes. Some never rise above sense. Some mount a little towards heaven, but cannot sustain themselves. They drop again to earth, and are called virtuous. Some divine men climb up to heaven and stay there. He does not explain whether it is possible for a man altogether to change his class. Celsus has shown us that one cardinal sin of the church in the eyes of the philosopher was that it promised the beatific vision to cobblers. In any case, Plotinus thought it monstrous to suppose that the suffering of one man could make another better. For a bad man to ask someone else to become his saviour, by the sacrifice of himself, is not lawful even in prayer. This is probably a sly hit at Christianity. At any rate, we have here in a nutshell the whole difference between the two systems. Virtue is likeness to God. It has two grades, the political or practical, and the greater or intellectual. One, two. Of the former, Plotinus seldom speaks, and always with clear reference to its provisional character. It is beautiful, fairer than the morning star, yet but a stepping stone to better things. It is contingent. The struggle with injustice makes a man stronger but it would be better if there were no injustice again the need of action is distracting consciousness and attention stand in inverse proportion the more we have to attend to the act of reading the less conscious we are of what is read considered from an empirical point of view the office of moral virtue is to limit and measure the desires and affections in general and to take away false opinions its work is mainly negative it wipes away the mud of vice and is a purification. But it has also a positive effect. Virtue intelligizes the soul. The really important thing is that it is a form, a law, and forms and laws come from God. The Neoplatonist, as a rule, practiced a rigid asceticism, but he was not ascetic in his demands upon others. There is even a tinge of antinomianism, or perhaps we should say a touch of geniality, about Plotinus. Little things do not matter, so long as they are not done on purpose. Nothing of this kind is sin, but rather right action. But we ought to aim not at being without sin, but at being God. If then a man does things of this kind without will, he is double, a God and a demon, or rather he has a companion at his side whose virtue is different from his own. But if he does them not, he is pure God. The greater virtue springs out of the less. It is the turning or conversion of the soul from sense to God. Man turns his face to the light and sees the ideal beauty, not afar off, but in his soul. For even before conversion he possessed the ideas, though thrust away in a dark corner. The greater virtue is free and needs no action. It is communion with the divine. The world does not give it, and cannot take it away. Closely connected with virtue is happiness. The bad man is doomed to misery he behaves like a wolf and he becomes a wolf but for the good life is good happiness is not pleasure though it is pleasant for life and intelligence are beautiful and beauty is crowned with grace which the soul seeks with love it is intensity of life hence its good must come not from without but from within and above in details plotinus is here almost completely stoic sympathetic sorrow is a weakness of the soul External blessings or misfortunes do not contribute to, or detract from, the felicity of the wise. The liar does not make the musician. If it is bad, the player will get a new instrument, or he will sing without one. But his general conception is the reverse of the Stoic, for he regards action as incompatible with happiness. The reward of the good is fullness of life, the punishment of the evil is wolfishness. But what about the future? plotinus says very little about this and what he does say merely repeats the traditional doctrine of his school the wicked are punished in hades or they come back to earth to expiate their sins in other and lower forms of life the soul that is purified by philosophy returns to the intelligible world and to it death is gain as to what becomes of the lower soul of man he felt great difficulty if it is the life of the body it passes into other bodies if it belongs to the soul proper it will go whithersoever that goes but tradition affirmed that the eidolon of heracles was in the elysian fields while the soul of heracles was a god in heaven here plotinus leaves the question with him as with all his school homer stands side by side with philosophy and polytheism with the absolute the morality of the neoplatonists is purely intellectual and therefore purely individual sympathy plays a great part in their physics but is wholly absent from their ethics this is the main reason why they could not found a church or even an enduring philosophy again there is no place in Neoplatonism for that fear of god which is the beginning of wisdom the man himself never sins god is above man and there is room for aspiration and adoration but there is no remorse or repentance or humility or dread little things do not matter in other words though the one is high He is not high enough. He does not charge the angels with folly. Hence the road to him is made too short and too easy. Lastly, the Neoplatonic morals are entirely unpractical. Action purifies, but in itself it is mere distraction. The desire to do arises out of feebleness of intelligence. Conduct has no inner relation to moral perfection. The way to be happy is to think much and do nothing. End of section 19 section 20 of neoplatonism by charles Big. this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter 20 on beauty intellectual virtue is the upward path which leads us back to god in the sleep of his soul man has forgotten his father yet he is drawn towards him by a dumb impulse for all things crave for him and reach towards him by necessity of nature as if divining that without him they cannot be two motives carry us upwards the love of beauty and the love of good the desire for good is universal and is sweet the love of beauty is not universal it is the new life and its birth pangs are sharp the perception and the awe of beauty five, 5 12, and the awakening of love come to men when they already as it were know and are awake but the good since it has always been an object of congenial desire is with them even while they sleep and does not awe them when they begin to see because it ever attends them and is not recollected at any particular moment nay they do not see it because they have it even in sleep but the love of beauty when it comes causes pain because they must first see and then desire this love therefore is second and not till men begin to understand does it tell them that the beautiful is But the older and unconscious desire testifies that the good is older and prior to beauty. The love of good is older and natural. Nevertheless, as good is above form or being, the love of good, as a distinctly moral motive, comes after and reaches higher than the love of beauty. Hence the upward path falls into two sections. The love of beauty carries a man up to the top of being and then hands him over to the love of good. We must consider, then, in this chapter the lower half of the Way one three one, over which presides the idea of beauty, that is, the divine intelligence. It is the sphere of art and knowledge. Three classes of men are capable of the journey. Or the road, we may say, has three branches. The first is for the musician, the second for the lover, the third for the philosopher. The beauty of sound, of shape and color, and of reasoned truth all lead to the same goal. But all these pilgrims are lovers alike, all woo the same goddess, though with different gifts. What, then, is the beautiful that they seek? It is within us, and not without. It is the inner loveliness that we seek, though we often forget this, as Narcissus fell in love with his own reflection in the pool. 5.8.2 Beauty, one seeks throughout, has many manifestations, in sights, in sounds, in virtue, in truth what is it that is common to all these what is it that makes them beautiful let us begin with objects of sight for in them we may find a key what is their charm the common opinion is that it resides in symmetry yet this will not suffice for if it be so the composite whole is beautiful while the parts are not but how can any number of uglinesses produce beauty there must be beauty also in the part the simple the incomposite. Otherwise, what becomes of beauty of color? How is gold beautiful, or lightning by night, or the stars? What again of sound? The melody is sweet, but so is the note. What again do we mean by the symmetry of virtue or of intelligence? In these acts of mind there is no proportion, either geometrical or arithmetical. And if we say that there is harmony, it may be replied that well-ordered falsehood is as harmonious as truth. Why, then, are we attracted by the beautiful, and shocked by the ugly? It is because the soul belongs to the better nature. Hence, whenever she discerns that which is akin to herself, or a trace of that which is akin, she rejoices and flutters with gladness, and takes it home to herself, and remembers herself and her parentage. Things are beautiful in so far as they partake of form, which gives them unity, the shadow of the One, and grace. They are beautiful by participation in a word that comes from the gods, They are ugly when the form, the word, has failed to control the matter, when they do not adequately represent the thought of the Creator. Sense recognizes the presence or absence of form, and its judgment is valid when the rest of the soul cooperates in its judgment. Or perhaps soul herself delivers this verdict, comparing the report of sense with the form which she possesses, and using this as her canon. The Parthenon is but a concrete expression of the idea of Phidias. When we behold it we see how the shape given by the artist masters the alien material and rides upon the other shapes we grasp the whole and welcome it just as a good man rejoices over some tray of virtue in a child because it harmonizes with the truth in himself it is the same with color this too is a form a bodiless light there are however higher beauties which it is not given to sense to behold but soul sees and expresses them without the aid of organs these we must mount up and contemplate, leaving sense below. But now you cannot speak intelligibly about visible beauty to those who have never seen it, and do not perceive that it is beautiful, for instance, to those who are born blind. And there is the same difficulty in describing moral loveliness to those who do not allow the beauty of habits, or sciences, or other things of the same nature, or the light of virtue to those who have no conception. How fair is the face of justice and self-control, fairer than the evening or morning star! men must first have seen and must be that eye with which the soul beholds the immaterial and vision must have been followed by delight and wonder and rapture far greater than what they felt over earthly things because they are now laying hold of the true for these feelings awe and sweet wonder and craving and love and delicious rapture must attend all that is beautiful and these emotions are possible and almost all souls do experience them even about objects that are not seen but especially those souls that are more susceptible of spiritual desire. It is the same with human passion. All feel it, but the wound is far deeper with some than with others, and these are said to love. What then is it which fills the lovers of the unseen with exultation when they behold the purity of temperance, the severity of fortitude, in themselves or in others? They will tell you that virtue is the truth of truths, the eternally fair, But why does the truth clothe the soul in light? Let us look at its opposite and find the answer. Take then an ugly soul, intemperate and unjust, full of lusts, full of confusion, fearful through cowardice, envious through meanness, thinking nothing but what is mortal and base, crooked in all its parts, living a life of fleshly passion, and thinking ugliness delightful. Shall we not say that its ugliness came upon it as an evil from without, that it maimed it and has made it unclean? polluted with all that is bad so that it has no pure life no pure sensation because its very life is dimmed by the mixture of evil and contaminated by much death so that it can no longer see what a soul ought to see and is no longer permitted to abide in itself because it is perpetually dragged outwards and downwards towards the darkness it is unclean then and pulled in all directions by cords towards the objects that importune its senses it is soiled with the body by the material It has received into itself an alien form and is altered by a debasing mixture, just as when a man tumbles into mire or mud, so that he no longer shows his beauty, and nothing can be seen but the filth which sticks to him. When the ugliness cleaves to a man by the plastering on of a foreign substance and has become his work, he must wash and be clean before he can again be what he was. If then we say that a soul is ugly by mixture and contamination and condescension towards the body and matter, we shall be right. The remedy is to get rid of desire cut the rope says Zeller, and the balloon will rise virtue is purification detachment the believer casts away every weight and at once the divine without catches hold of the divine within and lifts him up earthly beauty reveals the glory of the soul by which it was made and from this vantage ground the seeker if he do not turn his back upon the music will hear the heavenly harmony of intelligence Plotinus, it will be observed, does not resolve goodness into beauty, but as he empties goodness of moral significance he is compelled to use beauty as his first and chief motive. To this accordingly he attaches whatever there is left in his system of repentance and awe. Repentance is the delicious anguish of first love. The relation of art to morality he would decide in summary fashion. Vice is ugliness. Ugliness is painful and the more realistically depicted, the more painful it will be. It is painful because it represents God's failures, the triumph of the amorphous over the ordering word, the power of darkness, the unknown and horrible. End of section 20.
0: At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices.